Welcome to Reformations, the podcast of the Meter Center for Calvin Studies. And today we welcome Stefan van der Watt. Stefan, we're delighted to have you here. Stefan teaches at the uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Kobe in Japan. And he is a recipient, he is in fact the first inaugural recipient of the Meter Family Fellowship. Stefan, it's wonderful to have you here. Uh, you are Thank spending you. a number of weeks with us here at the Meter Center on your research. So let's start by having you first tell a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and what led to your interest in Reformation studies. Thank you very much, Corinne. It's a pleasure to be here and a, and a big privilege. Um, well, I was born and raised in South Africa, uh, where I lived for the first 32 years of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a pastor of the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa, before I got a calling to be sent out as a missionary to Japan. Mm -hmm. So for the past 10 years or so, I've been in Japan as a missionary, also as an ordained pastor now of the Reformed Church in Japan. So from the practice of church ministry, I've been involved uh, in the church life of Japan and South Africa. Uh, The background has been reformational ever since. So uh, from a Reformed Church perspective, I've been studying especially and also teaching uh, in pastoral theology and care. Mm-hmm. So now in the past three or four years, I've been involved in, in full-time teaching at uh, the Corby Reformed Theological Seminary. And in that sense, especially I've been requested by uh, the Reformed Church of Japan to teach pastoral theology and care from a Reformed perspective. So right. that automatically set me on the path of, you know, in a sense also, again, revisiting some things that I was taught mm-hmm. in South Africa, but had to relearn or see from a new perspective and to apply in a new context in Japan. So within that, yes, the Reformation studies and especially Calvin studies have become more relevant to myself and that's how I got the interest to go a little bit d- deeper into into that field. So um, I know you're working on a particular project while you're here with us. Could you say a little bit about your project? Yes, thank you very much. It's um, Practically, uh, it's about you know developing a curriculum for teaching in Japan. Mm-hmm. I teach in Japanese for Japanese pastors, well, also Korean students that become uh, pastors in the Japanese church in the, in the end. But um, yes, it's about developing a curriculum for a whole new field in Japan. For instance, right. in the RCJ, which has a history of about only 70 years, quite mm-hmm. a young church, there has not been a permanent teacher in pastoral theology and care. Right. So dogmatics, church history... And other fields have been very strong, mm-hmm. but they have, in a sense, lacked in that field. So I'm developing this curriculum, starting afresh, uh, trying to find my feet. It's mm-hmm. a huge challenge. And within that, now, in this specific time, six weeks here, is to maybe write an academic article and to you know develop that curriculum deeper and further and uh, to teach in a, in a more relevant and contextual way there. So I, I find it interesting that pastoral theology has not been an academic subject taught at the seminary. Why do you think that is? Like, what? How were people supposed to learn to do pastoral theology then if they weren't learning it in seminary? Yes, that's a very good question. I don't have the, the maybe the, uh, the full answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there were times when I think they sensed the need for that, but didn't have maybe someone who was taught and trained in that sense to mm-hmm. be able to teach it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, it has been maybe, if I can say it in this way, in a respectful way, maybe a very rationally, uh, you know, a rational approach to to theological life and to church life and to doing pastoral work. Mm-hmm. The teaching 
especially through preaching was always the focus. Right. But now I think the Japanese are sensing all the more it's important to be involved in people's existential needs day by day as pastors. They're where people are hurt, they're where people are wounded, and to walk with them, to have a compassionate heart, and to care for people on a practical level, and let that inform your teaching and your mm-hmm. preaching. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a new awareness that, that that's relevant and that's necessary for the context in Japan, but it hasn't always been the case. Is it also possible that perhaps they thought pastors would learn pastoral theology on the job, as it were, by watching others or sort of as they went, kind of mentored into it? Possibly that possible? that's one one aspect that I think uh, might ring true to, to, to how it has been, yes, up until now. And I think, you know, um, to put a little bit into context, I mean, the mm-hmm. Japanese church is small. Mm-hmm. Uh, this Reformed Church of Japan has about 10,000 members, maybe a little bit less at the moment, in about 140 congregations, which 40 of those are actually just mission posts because right. they don't have two elders to form uh, the church right. council and have right. a, a, a church itself. Uh, so it's small. It's like 30, 40 people uh, at the most. So you're talking about um, maybe a, a need for people who are trained to be able to do that, yep. to teach yep. in that way. Yes, maybe they thought it would be on the job mm-hmm. and that it might have been you know, applied as you go by. Mm-hmm. But um, we know that specialized training is needed to integrate yep. good theological, you know, systematic theological thought into practice and daily church life. Which I think is fascinating because my research on 16th century higher education and seminary in Geneva, they did not have a class in pastoral theology yes. for pastors at that time either, yes. right? And it's very interesting. Uh, they would be trained in preaching. They would mm-hmm. be trained in exegesis in Greek and Latin. A bit in church history, perhaps, um, but no class in pastoral care. Yes. And so it's interesting how the 16th century Genevan model and the 21st century Kobe model, they actually kind of had these similarities. They have similarities. And even if you go back far before that time, Mm -hmm. the early church uh, in the first, second century, um, if you're looking at their situation, before the time of Christendom from the 4th century, there were so many challenges in a non-Christian environment for them to exist and the persecution and all those stuff. And if you look at the Japanese context today, you see a 1% Christian uh, presence in Japan. So the church itself is just surviving, trying to exist, trying to continue. Um, So there are so many similarities even with an early church. And then, as you say, in the 16th century, uh, teaching and way of being church as well. Yes, practical theology as a field, just to add to that, mm-hmm. only developed in the 1820s or so, I think, with yep. Schleiermacher and so on from, yep. from Germany. And then missiology as well within that field. It developed then. I just read this week at Princeton Theological Seminary, there was an appointment of a, of a professor in 1823 or something, mm-hmm. 1830 something, uh, f- for practical theology and missiology. And that was the first. Right. And I think it ended shortly after that. So ah. sl- <laughs> slowly but surely after yes. that only, Yep. All these practical theological disciplines developed. Absolutely. And all the more, obviously, in the 20th century. Absolutely. So, what led you to apply for a fellowship at the Meter Center to do your work? I mean, I suppose you could have gone anywhere, perhaps, to do this. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Um, well, I wish I could go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that easy. No, it is, um, it is a friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Paul Yu, who mm-hmm. was a fellow Meter 
Media Center uh, Fellowship recipient yes. who encouraged me uh, while he was in Japan on a visit as mm -hmm. uh, the director of Asian missions for Resonate Mission from the CRC. Mm -hmm. He was there in about two, three years ago and he encouraged me. I didn't know about the Media Center itself. I knew sure. about Calvin Seminary, but he said there's a specific center for these studies. Why don't you apply? Mm -hmm. And uh, just to put it in perspective, I I thought well, that's a great idea. I'd apply and um, uh, the dean of our seminary encouraged it and I wrote a proposal and about two weeks before uh, the closure, the yes. closing date, I thought, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to make it. You know, I don't have enough resources now to write a proper proposal. Uh -huh. And I sort of gave up. Uh -huh. And then just a couple of days before the deadline, I just had this revision that I should you, you know, should probably go ahead and yeah. put it in good for you <laughs> for then, putting it in and then you were gracious enough to give this opportunity and, well, and the committee yeah. for us it was very important we wanted for the Meter Family Fellowship the Meter Family has always been very interested in research projects connect with the life of the church That's it's right. been always very important for them not to have um, too many topics that are very scholarly that are somehow disconnected from the life of the church so yes when they put this fellowship in place, one of their criteria was to make sure that we picked people whose research intersected with church life. And your proposal mm. was very helpful in that way. So we were very glad to be able to be able to fund that. Thank you. So um, you have a very interesting uh, background brought up in South Africa and now in Japan. Um, so it must be uh, a bit of a challenge sometimes to be uh, working in Japan working in Japanese, no less. Um, talk to us a little bit about what that experience is like, your intercultural experience and your commitment to pastoral care in a Japanese context. Thank you very much. Yeah, a bit of a challenge is an understatement. I'm sure. It is a challenge, really, just to, you know, you live in a language, mm -hmm. you, you breathe in a language. Mm -hmm. So to do that in Japanese every day is a challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, by the grace of God, we have survived the 10 years yep. and um, we're still learning. I mean, learning the Japanese language is really a lifelong project. Mm -hmm. But within that, yes, um, teaching now pastoral theology and care in this totally radically different context than what I'm used to mm -hmm. um, has so many diverse uh, challenges, but also plus points, things that enrich myself and I think the teaching coming from a different perspective and culture, mm -hmm. uh, the way pastoral care, in a sense, maybe should be performed or should take shape in that context. Obviously, I don't know everything, but right. step by step being guided by the students, the context, the church, the needs there, mm -hmm. following, encouraging, deepening with them an understanding of what firstly the situation is, the context is, the needs are, and then within that trying to, with the training that I've had, uh, to engage with that um, mm -hmm. in, a, in a meaningful way, mm -hmm. that is a daily sort of challenge for myself. And then to translate that into Japanese, obviously, yes, exactly. time-consuming time and so forth. I not only teach, the big thing that I think that um, makes it wonderful to be able to have a full round experience is it's not just the academic stuff it's being involved in church life yes preaching on Sundays mm -hmm. preaching at the chapel in the seminary um, being involved in pastoral care counseling uh, situations being asked to present marriage seminars or right. camps and so right. forth so that's mm -hmm. the practical stuff that, that informs the teaching mm -hmm. um, but yes um, what is it supposed to look like? What is it? How is it taking shape? That, mm -hmm. That's an enduring process, which I'm learning a lot. It's a, yes. it's a learning curve every day. So um, I need to obviously 
deal a lot with things that I do not know how to translate it literally. So I yes. I consult with colleagues about that. Yes. Or uh, yeah, uh, it's it's so a long story. I mean to the explain. Japanese church has been obviously it's a rather small church still. Yes. Um, how are you received as a South African in the Japanese Reformed Church? I mean, do they? You've been there now ten years, so that's mm. a, a relatively significant period of time. Uh, have do Japanese Christians consider you as sort of exotic, or or as part of their group? I mean, how how are you perceived mm. within? within the Japanese church, you know? Well, the best people to answer that question would be my Japanese exactly. brothers and sisters. Exactly. But yeah, I think there's this unique, um, wonderful bond and mm -hmm. partnership that has been growing almost for 50 years now, since mm -hmm. the 1970s, mm -hmm. when the first missionaries were sent from the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa. How that happened is a wonderful story, which I cannot tell now, but it is a wonderful um, you know, guidance of God, grace of God, that it started, mm -hmm. and then it developed. There was also a break where those missionaries, my own parents-in-law, were right. sent back to South Africa because of the apartheid history of the South African church. Right. But yes, the, the unique thing, I think, between the Japanese and the South African church is we share, in a sense, uh, a certain fragility, okay. a certain vulnerability. Mm -hmm. The South African, in its, uh, in its uh, vastly different context, but fragile in the sense of the Dutch Reformed Church now being in a post-apartheid South Africa, trying to find yep. their feet to know how to serve a new community in new ways, right. not from a power position, but from s as servants. Yep. Now, the Japanese, in other ways, experienced so much strife and difficulty after having the huge tsunamis and earthquakes. Yep striking in 2011 and even before that many mm -hmm. of these type of you know disastrous things have happened so a church on her knees yep. and and two churches both on her knees struggling with especially if i can mention it now diaconal work yes. how to be involved diaconally in society yep. Th those are the things that bind us together mm -hmm. and that bring us um you know closer than i think we could imagine mm -hmm. and then yes um maybe my own position there I can see it's much ap appreciated and, and valued, not because of what I bring, yep. but just because they really sense the need to, to be in partnership and to, to do things together. We're Connected. one body in Christ, yep. you know, exactly. ecumenically linked. Exactly. Um, yeah, so yep. I'm very privileged that I'm trusted with so much opportunities to be, to be, to be involved there. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, a, it's a major thing, yes. Um, so your interests are pastoral theology and then also missiology. How what what trends do you see in the field? Let's start with mission studies at the current time. Okay. Um, what does missionary work look like in our 21st century time compared, if you want, to the 19th century or 20th century ways of doing mission? Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't a missionary then, but I can sense a lot of changes that have happened. Mm -hmm. Big paradigm shifts in the last hundred years, specifically since, for instance, the seminal conference in in Edinburgh, Edinburgh yes. in 1910. Mm -hmm. And if you look at 2010 and the big conferences that were held in four places across the globe, one of them being South Africa, mm -hmm. where, for instance, the Cape Town commitment, the big declaration was was found again after the Lausanne movement started in 30, 40 years earlier. So there have so been there were so many conferences. Big shifts in, I think, understanding mission now uh, in a post-colonial era mm -hmm. as, um, firstly, the mission of God coming from the theological uh, perspective of the Missio Dei, right. God being in his triune self, the one who sends us to the world. Mm -hmm. um, but then, yes, in a post-colonial framework, not coming with that, in a sense, baggage of 
thinking that we have the power to bring a message that we can transform this world. Right. But to really understand how to be alongside others, to support, to serve, uh, again, the diaconal uh, mm-hmm. part of that missional movement as well. Um, it's all about being incarnational, being relational yes. um, in, in understanding how to um, translate the message in a different culture. Mm-hmm. Coming now, the movement also very strongly from the global south and yes. the east. Absolutely. It was always from the north and the west in yep. a sense. Yep. That big shift has happened within a century since 1910. Yep. And those movements are, yes, I think... Um, challenging us in new ways so for me training pastors in japan also Mm -hmm. in a non-christian context one percent christian context is to understand how to blend pastoral theology and care uh, but with an evangelic uh, you know evangelistic um, frame of mind mission-minded pastoral care right understanding how pastoral care can help us to bring the gospel of jesus christ right to redeem to heal to bring compassion where there is woundedness and and, right. and so forth. So right. th- that's how I'm so trying to understand the two my own together, role. basically. Yeah, and yep. bringing these two together. So for me, they're not split. You know, missiology and pastoral care and theology, two fields. You can academically, in a sense, distinguish them, mm-hmm. but they are combined in life of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to, in my own then teaching and understanding of church, uh, helping pastors to be trained to to inform these two fields and integrate these two fields Connect. in a unique way. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, for instance, um, if I can yeah, just add ahead. to that, um, in the 20th century, the big pastoral care movement was the cou- counseling and care movement, which happened since the a- 1920s, mm-hmm. started by Anton Boysen in America, mm-hmm. uh, developed here uh, Hugely helpful in terms of psychological skills, listening skills, sure, everything developing around the psychological, sociological understanding of life. You know, knowing how people live and what they need existentially, and how to bring the gospel in that in that sense. Yes. But the one side of that movement that might have been a little bit detrimental to the church, in a sense, is mm-hmm. that the theological edge of that has not been as sharp as it should have been right. for the last 20, 30 years. If you see that in the writings about pastoral care. Right. So for me now, the challenge is to, in a sense, return, and that's why this study period has you know, helped me again, even to right. return back to the roots of the Reformation, to see what is the really core of mm-hmm. what we should be doing, and how can even reformers, the leading reformers, help us. Uh, so that that sounds, mm. I think, something that would be interesting to talk a little more about. As you look at the reformers, and I know you're looking primarily at John Calvin and Martin Bootser in Strasbourg, right. what sort of insights, I mean, you've been here a few weeks, I don't know how much you already have in hand, but yeah. what sorts of insights do you think the reformers can bring to these topics of pastoral care and missions and the connection between the two? Thank you. Um, one thing that I should say from the start is we shouldn't be romantic and, and try to idealize mm-hmm. or to try and make a model of what they did in the 16th century sure. for us today. Yep. We have to be contextually relevant now. Uh, you know that much yep. mm-hmm. better than I do. But yes, so it's not about doing what they did. But for me, seeing who they were mm-hmm. and how their attitudes and convictions influenced what they did as right. theologians. And not just as theologians, mm-hmm. but as pastors. Right. John Calvin himself had a self-identity which was formed by his understanding of a being a, a pastor, called yes. to be a pastor in the church. 
as a reformer then, a second generation reformer after Butzer, who was part of the first generation, mm-hmm. trying to influence how church should be right. and how pastors should be good pastors in churches. So Butzer specifically had this wonderful mentoring influence on Calvin mm-hmm. in the three years that Calvin spent in Strasbourg mm-hmm. between his two Genevan um, involvements as a pastor. So I, I see so much interesting stuff there where Butzer teaches Calvin, in a sense, to be a better pastor. Right. It also influenced the way then, in, in the end, how he wrote his second um, edition of the, the Institutes. Institute, sure. But even more than that, the interesting stuff comes forth when you read the letters. Yes that uh, Calvin wrote to Butzer and vice versa mm-hmm. and to many others. I mean, he was just a pastor of many pastors, the, yep. the company of pastors as it's called mm-hmm. in that time. So it's intriguing to see, um, and for me then, if I can summarize it, to see again how the commitment as pastors blended with also their mission-mindedness, their missionary zeal, their, their right. evangelical zeal to bring the gospel even to the ends of the earth. They had a failed mission trip to Brazil, right. but at least they tried. And in the first place, um, Calvin as a refugee, preaching to the refugees in Strasbourg, for instance, the French refugees there, their first aim was to try and re-Christianize European right. context. Right. So that was their mission field. Yep. And uh, yeah, they had a clear... Uh, they had a clear identity as pastors being called to be involved with the deep challenges that people were facing. It wasn't an easy time of life. No. So you can read papers and think that it's this cold, clinical, mm-hmm. stern Calvin mm-hmm. who didn't care much for people. But if you read into letters and yep. uh, things like that, you get a much more balanced view of who he really was. I think yeah. that's right. And uh, it strikes me that sometimes our views of the reformers, particularly say Calvin, is that mission was not so important to him. Uh, and sometimes it's a very big misreading of certain theological issues like predestination, that That's therefore right. there's no need of mission because, hey, right. God's decided everything already. But I think your research is showing that that's not really a, a, a correct understanding. Am I right? Exactly. Exactly. Specifically on that point, uh, it, it is viewed in, in by some that uh, you know predestination excludes the need for evangelism, which cannot be further from the truth if you really read how Calvin writes about mission and evangelism and mm-hmm. so forth in many of his writings. So, yeah, th- that that uh, myth should be debunked. Exactly, exactly. And while the Catholics did have a, a sort of a starting point for missions, worldwide missions, earlier than the Protestants, I don't think that means that the Protestants were not interested in mission. It's not just at a all. different kind of context. That's right. And if you even look at the practical side of it, the Catholics had the money and the ships. Mm-hmm. So they went all across the globe. They even went to Japan in 1549. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> in the time that Calvin lived and, and just about the same time that they went to Brazil, just before that they went to Brazil, the mm-hmm. Protestants, but they didn't have the means like the Catholics had. Mm-hmm. So you have to understand those dynamics if you criticize, mm-hmm. in a sense, the apparent non-missional Uh, perspective of Calvin and so forth. So you've been doing work here for a number of weeks already, which is a a very good thing. Um, If someone came to you and said, well, Stefan, I'm sort of wondering, should I come to the Meter Center? What what benefit is there from coming to the Meter Center? Based on what you have found so far, what would you tell them? Well, amazing. I'm just, uh, I've had heard good stuff, read up on it before I came and so on and thought that the Meter Center would be a great place to do this type of study. But I couldn't imagine mm-hmm. that it would have been so helpful, mm-hmm. uh, 
not just the materials, not just the Heckman Library itself and the Media Center, the concentrated, you know, uh, space where you can get everything in one space in a sense. If you mm -hmm. need a book, it's just there. Mm -hmm. um, it's much more than that. The people there, yourself, yep. uh, Paul and Deborah and so forth, you know, helping with a lot of proficiency, kindness and being so informed about that period that if I have a question mm -hmm. and I just relate it to you, immediately you have four or five recommendations of things. So, yeah, please, uh, anybody that uh, is considering, you don't have to think twice. This no, is a great place to do it. That, that's a good thing. And I know you've had some contacts with other colleagues here on campus. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance as a scholar, not just of books and articles and so on, but of the contacts you make with people? How, how significant is that aspect of your research? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, in the end, it is about people and relationships and, and making it concrete in context. So being here, it is many ways unexpected events or meetings or, you know, uh, unexpected, uh, yeah, um, I'm thinking now in Japanese, <laughs> not, not getting the English word, but yeah, meetings, unexpectedly getting people to know people in a new way. Um, that has been a, a great part of this six-week period where... Um, um, I've been informed by the questions, the views uh, of local people here in Calvin Seminary, mm -hmm. also those scholars that have come mm -hmm. that have surprised me uh, and have uh, enriched me. So, um, yeah, I think in the end that's a bonus much more than just the materials. For us, that's one of the benefits of having scholars, especially in the summertime, come from different places and then they can essentially build their own little community um, and uh, help each other as they encounter materials or ideas or, or for suggestions sure. for each other. I think that's a real benefit that it you might not get because talk a little bit about your seminary in Japan so people have an idea of what kind of a place it is. How big is it? What yeah. kind of, what, what's your experience there like? Yeah. Well, um, as you said, it's small in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, it is focused on the, Reform, the Reformed Church of Japan's um, church ministry and life, training the pastors there. So, um, uh, in a sense, it's much more isolated than, for instance, here in Calvin, where it's connected to so many other universities or big conferences are held mm -hmm. and so forth. The, the language exclusion, obviously, being yeah. in Japanese, everything yeah. makes it very difficult to connect with international scholars in that sense. Mm -hmm. But in its own way there, and in its own right, uh, in Kobe, it has a very good reputation of yes. teaching good reformed theology. Mm -hmm. uh, many Korean students, as I said, come to study there. Uh, we have many groups visiting us many mm -hmm. times. Uh, and within the RCJ, at least, there are the, the buildings itself, the seminary itself, the chapel, uh, also forms a little congregation on a Sunday where people from the neighborhood comes and so on. So sure. it's a community. Uh, it's brothers and sisters in Christ living together mm -hmm. um, and forming community, encouraging one another for the life and the work of the church mm -hmm. for the 21st century. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's a vibrant place uh, where people are really excited um, to get equipped to try their best in ministry in Japan. So And, yeah, and how um, much um, networking is there between, say, uh, Reformed Christians in Japan and Korea and Indonesia and China, sort of a pan-Asian? Is there much going on? There at is that a network. Level? There yeah. is a network yeah. like that, yes. And we, we uh, are very open to that ecumenical um, uh, partnerships. Mm -hmm. So... Again, the language is an issue uh, because of the Japanese versus the English, which is more obviously uh, communal for everyone to understand. 
But yeah, um, there's good relationships, especially with the Lutheran church as well in our yep. area. And conferences are held for, as it is called in Japan, the Japanese Evangelical Church Association. Mm-hmm. So within that, maybe a little bit more conservative uh, in terms of theological strand um, of uh, congregations, there there are a number of networks that um, exist and that enrich one another. And yeah. I think that's so helpful to have that contact beyond one's own institution to be networked with people further afield. I think Absolutely. it's invaluable. Yeah, Corby is not the hub. Obviously, Tokyo is the hub. So there are more right. universities there with faculties of theologies or seminaries. Mm-hmm. Our unique situation in the RCJ is that we are separate from that. It has a whole history which uh, I cannot uh, yes. you know, explain now. Mm-hmm. Time is too little, but um, it has that history. Uh, but it's not isolated in that sense. We are very connected ecumenically, very open also to good partnerships with other churches there. That's so helpful. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it, and we are delighted to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's a privilege.